China's gigantic economy is retrenching, at least according to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, whose front and back pages feature reports and stories of China's crisis of confidence, real estate defaults, deflation, darkening mood, and economic decline. But China has a very long history. Yeah. And during that long history, it also had periods of boom and bust and gigantic failures and substantial successes, right? So, so let's, let's be clear about that baseline of, I would argue that the golden age of China is before sixth century. Before sixth century, wow. When China clearly led the rest of the world in technology, in invention, and in science. Uh, it is unique in the sense that exam system, as far as I can, I can, I, I, I know, is unique to Chinese civilization. Unique in a sense that in other civilizations, you had that much later. Yeah. And they tended to be pale emulations of the Chinese system. In fact, in terms of the mobility, upward mobility, right? So this is kind of a, almost like a, almost like the myth of American dream. Yeah. Right? So from the rack to the, to the riches. And the exam system did that, right? And, um, you know, whether or not, it democratized the system. That's a separate de debate. I, I don't think it democratized yeah. the system. It actually did exactly the opposite. Did you know that the compass, gunpowder, paper, the printing press, all history-changing technologies were invented in China? Yet the realization of their economic values happened in Europe, not in China. This is a story of the steep price that Imperial China paid for the sake of stability and scale. A story that Communist China seems to be repeating now. Hey there, Newspeelers. Today is September 29, 2023, and this is Adele your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. Let me read you some recent headlines from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. An even bigger housing crisis threatens China's economy. China's economy shows fresh weakness in factories, housing, and consumer spending. 
China's economy still faces headwinds despite early signs of recovery. Slowing, graying, and in debt, can China's industrial heartland be revived? Why is China's economy stumbling? China's stocks slump as economic gloom spreads. As China falls into deflation, the mood darkens. How do we manage China's decline? A crisis of confidence is gripping China's economy. Okay, I'll stop here. I think you get the picture. While all these ominous and dire opinions are very interesting and highly informative, one New York Times article stuck with me more than the rest. It's the story of a Chinese woman who, according to the New York Times, quote, was the epitome of how small business owners, through hard work, killer instinct, and luck, became the backbone of the economy, end quote. The New York Times tells her story from the 1990s when she was 17 years old and dropped out of high school to support her family, working as a farmer, a textile worker, a street food vendor, and a taxi driver. But by 2018, this woman, this Chinese entrepreneur, had 20 restaurants in China. Initially, banks didn't lend to her, (laughs) but as her business grew and did well, banks chased after her (laughs) to lend her money. When COVID hit, her business, like all other businesses in China, was in trouble. Unfortunately, bank lending had dried up even before that, as instructed by new government guidelines about loans to small businesses. This woman, this Chinese entrepreneur, was behind in paying her employees, and since China doesn't really have bankruptcy laws, she ended up in jail. Later, a court seized her personal assets, her home, her car, and placed her on a national blacklist, which means that she cannot even make room reservations at a hotel, purchase a plane ticket, and she certainly cannot get a loan. This national blacklist was established in 2013, after President Xi took the helm, and there are now several million business owners on that list, including founders of some of China's Fortune 500 private companies. As the New York Times tells it, this Chinese woman's story is an example of, quote, how China, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, killed the animal spirits of the entrepreneur class as it asserted more state control of the economy, end quote. This Chinese woman's story is long, and you're welcome to read it for yourself via the link I've provided for you in the detailed caption of this episode. But there's a reason why I shared parts of this story with you here. This story is not about economic stats and comparative charts. Rather, this is a story of how rigid policies and strict state control can kill entrepreneurship and creative ideas. And this is where my guest, Dr. Yisheng Wong of MIT's Sloan School of Management, helps us tremendously. He reveals aspects of China's economic history that relate to this Chinese woman's story. In this conversation, I had many wow moments, and I'm sure you will too. Basically, China's economy and technology were far ahead of the rest of the world, by leaps and bounds, by centuries, and then Europe caught up and surpassed China. But why? Why did this happen? It had to do with entrepreneurship, creativity, and diversity of ideas and ideologies, which are essential for a thriving economy. As Dr. Huang tells it, in China, the overriding objectives of a stability and autocracy, 
suppressed scope in favor of scale, quash heterogeneity in favor of homogeneity, and discourage diversity in favor of uniformity. And here's the thing. Communist China under President Xi seems to be repeating the same mistakes. Mistakes with potentially grave consequences for China's economy, such as those heralded in the headlines that I share with you here. Dr. Huang is the author of a recently published book titled The Rise and Fall of the East. In this title, the word East is in all caps, and the subtitle explains what it is. How exams, autocracy, stability, and technology brought China success, and why they might lead to its decline. It's a fascinating book that we discuss in this episode. Dr. Huang is the Epic Foundation Professor of Global Economics and Management at MIT's School of Management. He's the author of 11 books in both English and Chinese and of many academic papers and news commentaries. Dr. Huang is a co-principal investigator in a large-scale multidisciplinary research project on food safety in China. He founded and runs China Lab and India Lab, which have provided low-cost consulting services to hundreds of small and medium enterprises in China and India. From 2015 to 2018, he ran a program in Yunnan province to train women entrepreneurs. It's a program that we talk about in this episode. By the way, during this academic year, 2023 to 24, Dr. Huang is a fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. I wish Dr. Huang and I had more time to talk about autocracy in China and how its development was different from the autocracies in Europe. So I look forward to having him on our program again when that topic is on the news. To learn more about Dr. Huang, you can visit his personal and academic homepages, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Dr. Huang and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Huang, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start our conversation by directly going to your book. It is titled, The Rise and Fall of the East, How Exams, Autocracy, Stability, and Technology Brought China Success and Might Lead to Its Decline. Um, what I want to know is this. What perspective do you bring in this book that is new, given there are so many books about China. Yeah, uh, thank you, Adele. First of all, I'm very happy to be on your show. And that's an excellent question to start the conversation. Um, I think one thing that's new, oh, uh, there are several things that's new, but, but let me start with this one. One thing that's new is, um, my, I think my book is more nuanced and more balanced about China's successes and failures than previous treatments. China's and, failures? Is that what you said? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, oh <laughs> communist China, greatly <laughs> forward, cultural revolution. Yep. Um, 20 million people starved to death. I, I will count those as failures. Um, yep. So, so for one thing, um, it is important for the for your viewers and for your audience to know that when we talk about China, we are not just talking about China since 1978, right? 
And because since 1978, Chinese economy has boomed, has grown very fast. And that's sort of the perspective that many people have of China. But China has a very long history. Yeah. And during that long history, it also had periods of boom and bust and gigantic failures and substantial successes, right? So, so let's, let's be clear about that baseline of facts. And I think one perspective I brought into the discussion is that the view that a country succeeds on a balance of two forces. One I call scale and the other I call scope. Right? Scale means basically homogeneity. Scope means uh, heterogeneity. Right? So a country needs to have an optimal balance of these two forces. It needs to be homogeneous on some dimensions. It needs to be heterogeneous on other dimensions. So um, if you look at Dr. Huang, yeah. when you say homogeneous uh, and heterogeneous, you're not necessarily talking about ethnicities and race. You're also talking yeah. in, in this sort of uh, technical innovation, uh, financial and economic sense. Yeah, I'm I'm not talking about things like geography, you know, rivers and terrains and landscape. These are kind of a natural condition. Uh, when I say uh, homogeneous and heterogeneous, I mainly mean uh, human-created conditions, right? So human-creative con- conditions. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, autocracy, right? In my book, that that's a system about homogeneity: one ideology, one ruling party, one ruler. Um, and democracy, in my book, is heterogeneous, multiple parties, multiple ideologies, elections, and multiple rulers. Um, so in my book, I mainly talk about these issues, institutions, politics, and economy, rather than geography and, and, and those type of things. So, yeah. And, uh, and, and it's interesting, it's a little bit of a, play with words, but it makes a lot of sense. You use the word East, as in the rise and the fall of the East, in all caps, and the East stands for something, right? Yeah. So in this telling, East stands for exam, autocracy, stability, and technology. And so it has sort of four elements and they are linked with each other through this homogeneous heterogeneous framework that I laid out. Um, and I trace a lot of the kind of political economic development and the characteristics of those developments to the first letter of this uh, acronym, uh, E, exam. Mm-hmm. That was a civil service exam system that was established in the 6th century, and I went through the details of that system and how that system homogenized ideas and consolidated autocratic rule, and it has left a profound legacy on China today. 
place. So that's kind of the underlying theme of the whole book. Um, we're going to actually get to these four elements because reading about your book and preparing for this conversation, I'm really fascinated by how you develop the history of each element and tie it to current China under CCP. Um, but what I'm wondering is this, is the coexistence or convergence of these four elements in the East, all caps, uh, is it unique to China's history? Uh, it is unique in the sense that exam system, as far as I can, I can, I, I, I know, is unique to Chinese civilization. Unique in the sense that in other civilizations, you had that much later. Yeah. And they tended to be pale emulations of the Chinese system. And so if you look at other systems, they use the uh, uh, hereditary um, system, right? Bloodline yeah. as a way to promote political appointees and or you use military conquest uh, as a test. Right? So you can think about that as a test as well, but except it is more about military power rather than your mental power to process information. As far as I know, you know, I can be corrected on this, and your audience may know better. China not only is the first country to use this system, it is so far ahead of other civilizations in the duration and uniformity and the scale of that system, right? Uh, so in that sense, it is unique. Um, in many countries in Europe, and we'll get into this uh, in more detail, um, offices, including bureaucratic offices, were actually bought. There were things that the yeah. monarchs sold to make money, for example, uh, in, in, in France. Uh, um, earlier, you mentioned two things um, that really caught my attention. Right off the bat in our conversation, you said China's failure. And then several moments later, you said gigantic failures. I want to know a couple of things. I'm just curious now. Is there one particular epoch that stands out as China's golden age? Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about one because that's an important question. China has such a long history, right? So the, I would argue that the golden age of China is before sixth century. Before sixth century. Wow. When China clearly let the rest of the world in technology, in invention, and in science. We're not sure whether or not China let the rest of the world in terms of living standards, because that's a little bit tricky concept. Yeah. It's on a per capita basis mm -hmm. and 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 it's likely that all the civilizations had about the same per capita uh, living standard. But in terms of aggregate, uh, there's fairly substantial evidence that China led the rest of the world in science and technology. 
So when you said lead, by how far? By how much? It's it's it, 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 this is qualitative judgment by uh -huh. historians, and uh, I have to say I don't have a way to quantitatively challenge or verify that conclusion. The reason is that uh, we can go into that later on. We created a database on Chinese inventions. And there's not a similar database on other civilizations, on Muslim civilization, on European civilization. So we can't really quantitatively compare Europe with China, China with uh, Islamic uh, civilization. Yeah. But I think historians uh, have a view that you know Europe was in the Dark Age during that period of time. And Chinese invented so many technologies. Uh, the four biggest inventions were were uh, in China, right? Were Chinese. Francis Bacon referred to that. Uh, uh, Karl Marx referred to that. And there's also evidence that China exported a lot of technologies to Europe. I mean, these are pretty good historical evidence. Uh, so on the basis of that. Uh, historians believe China led the rest of the world in, in scientific and technological, uh, domain, right? Um, so I will count that as the true golden era of China. Economists have a different timeline. They look at GDP, um, you know, there, there's the, the famous uh, data set that shows that China was the biggest economy in the world as late as the 18th century, 19th century. Uh, the, the problem with that is the GDP data are really poor. And the recent research has actually challenged that view. And the more recent, uh, better, better research, I would argue, shows that China was actually behind the West uh, as early as 15th century, 14th century. Um, so, but our technology indicator, I think, is more objective, more solid. Uh, on the basis of that, China peaked around 6th century, and then it began a gradual decline. A couple of uh, follow-up clarifying questions. First, um, first, I just find it amazing that uh, you're debunking uh, the generally accepted view that China's uh, economy, speaking from a GDP perspective, was ahead of Europe's in 18th and 19th century. And it makes sense based on what you're saying, your objective analysis. But um, what I'm wondering is that comparison is to the whole of Europe. It's not by country. You're not. These, these, these comparisons that, for example, China's GDP was ahead is not per country like China to France, China to Sweden, China to Germany. Well, Germany was a lot of small states. Or China to England, right? Uh, yes and no. The more nuanced research actually shows comparison between the most developed part of China with the most developed part of Europe, right? And so by that comparison, uh, China lost is edge over Europe as early as possibly 14th century, 15th century in terms of the GDP measure. I see. Right. 
And that actually coincides up with our data on technology. What we showed is that in the first, uh, in, in sixth century, there was an initial decline. And then the technology, the technological development kind of plateaued. Uh-huh. But at a fairly, fairly high level. And then by 14th century, there was another sharp decline. Basically, it went down to zero. Right. So oh, wow. it kind of coincided with this. Uh, with this economic research um, that, um, I, and by the way, I, I want to clarify, I, I didn't do the GDP research. That was done by a economist at uh, Oxford University mm-hmm. in collaboration with an economist at uh, Tsinghua University. I, I didn't do that. I just borrowed their... Income. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned other economists had um, uh, conducted these studies. Uh, my two follow-up questions, just for a point of interest for our audience, you said four biggest inventions in China before the 6th century. Uh, I think it would be fun to itemize it. Yeah. So, yeah. So actually, one was before the 6th century, and we can come back to, to, to about these other three. So it's paper, compact, gunpowder, and printing. Ah. And, and yeah, so those are like the four, I would argue, biggest inventions in uh, history until the Industrial Revolution, for example. And, um, um, and and they were all Chinese. Every single one of them was Chinese. Right? Francis Bacon referred to them in his writing about uh, technology. Although he... Uh, uh, he talked about three uh, inventions, the long paper and printing together, yeah. even though paper was invented well before printing. This is, uh, this is really interesting because many of these were later uh, widely used and improved on uh, in Europe and, and North America, such as yeah. printing and gunpowder and what have you, and paper. Um, my last question, again, just a point of interest, is what were some of the major exports of China? Uh, I think I can come up with some um, Porcelain, silk. Yeah, so the uh, uh, tea, right? Tea yeah, was very famous, and that potentially was one source of the Opium War because the British uh, ran a trade deficit with China exactly so much tea, and they couldn't figure out how they, to make tea as it, as well as they did in China. Yeah, so then, well, they they eventually figured it out in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why tea has a Chinese uh, um, original name to it. Um, so that was a very famous uh, uh, porcelain, right? That was exported to uh, Holland. And Holland copied the Chinese technology. And by the way, improved upon it uh, substantially. Duke, um, but but as you mentioned, these four technologies spread from China to Europe. And here is a very interesting contrast. They were invented in China, but their economic value happened in Europe. Wow. It is it is a little bit or economic or political value. It is exactly the opposite of what we are observing today. So if you look at electric vehicles, uh, solar panels, right, nuclear energy, each one of those was invented in the West. 
right, in Germany and then in the United States. But they were deployed on massive scale in China to produce economic, commercial, and some people would argue even military values, right? So it's exactly the flip it's switched. of the historical pattern. It's switched, right? Um, and um, oh, wow. And I just think that in and of itself deserves the whole book. It is fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, phenomenon. Um, wow, we could have an entire podcast on that. Uh, before we go to the next segment, you said uh, tea, the name comes from China. You mean the word tea comes from China? Ha, ha, yeah. It was ha, oh, right? I didn't yeah. know that. I thought. Yeah, so that no, that's that's Chinese. That's a Chinese word. Wonderful. But uh, we'll yeah. be back after a short break to talk about exams and autocracy. We'll be right back. Is China's real estate debt structure essentially one gigantic Ponzi scheme? According to Dr. Victor Xi, yes, it is. Dr. Xi is a professor at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy and the chair in China and Pacific Relations. I spoke with him last year in Season 2, Episode 1, as one of the biggest real estate developers in China, the Evergrande Group, was defaulting on its loans. Our conversation then was timely for yet another reason. The publication of a book edited by Dr. Xi, which was about how authoritarian governments, such as China's, handled economic crisis. The title of that book is Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability. I've dropped a link to my conversation with Dr. Xi in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Huang. Dr. Huang, in the last segment, uh, we talked about exams in China and how um, they they started back in the 6th century. Did I get the period correct? Yeah. yeah 6th century. Uh, late 6th century. What I'm, what I'm wondering is, what was the motivation behind this? As, as, you, as, as, as you described it well, this was way ahead of anything that Europe did for its administration. So <laughs> yeah. how did China come up with this? Um. So that's that's the issue. I have to say I don't really know because you are talking about motivation and um, and by the way, the sixth century version is a um, is a sort of a systematic version of previous versions that were ad hoc, haphazard, irregular. So so the dating of it goes even further than the 6th century. Oh, wow. Um, so in 6th century, to sort of organize it, institutionalize it, if you will. Yeah, so that's right. exactly. Institutionalization of oh, it. Oh, wow. Um, so, so before it sort of existed here and there, uh, it was oral exam, not written exam. And it was, um, uh, it was sequential. So you first got recommendations and then you tested people who already got uh, positive recommendations, whereas in the 6th century, they began to expand the eligibility, right? They, they scaled it to the um, 
almost the entire male population beyond the elite. I mean, again, that process took took a couple of hundred years to complete. In the ancient times, the system didn't move very fast. In terms of why, I have to say I don't know. And and I I I know that the exam system proved to be beneficial to the autocrat. To the autocrat, not right? to the state in general. Oh, uh, no, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, you know, it it was it was also good to the system as far as the autocrats constituted a major part of that system, yeah. right? So. Essentially, it promoted autocratic stability. And if you look at the data on the duration of the rulers, they increased after they introduced the exam. And the length of the dynasty uh, also increased somewhat, not as much as the duration of the rulers, but that also increased. And also, China became a unified country after the 6th century. Before the 6th century, there was a period of unification, but there was also a long period of disunity. After that, 6th century, basically China remained unified, except for a short period of time. Um, uh, but majority of that time period is a unified uh, country China today is, is a unified uh, uh, autocracy. So, uh, so it promoted uh, the the duration of the ruler rule. It promoted the longevity of the system. It promoted the unification of the country. Um, as I was reading some of your um, essays and watching some of your prior interviews, two things that stuck out for me when it came to these exams. Uh, one of the things that I realized is that unlike Europe, Chinese monarchs, emperors, were sort of surrounded by people that were not in the elite, that were not, wait, let me correct that, yeah. that were not born into the elite yeah, class. Yeah, That's a difference. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's, this, this was sort of subtle. It, it took me a while to catch up to this. Uh, is, is my assessment correct here? Your assessment is absolutely correct. And there's, uh, I'm writing another book with a co-author of mine, uh, Claire Young. We have data to show after the exam was introduced in the 6th century, the people around the emperor, the people around the autocrats, became even more of a commoner background than before, right? So the exam definitely tipped the balance in favor of those people who hailed from humble backgrounds relative to born elite. That didn't exist anywhere else. I mean, if you look at, I don't know, in Middle East, Europe, uh, the kings yeah. and queens were surrounded by other Nobility right. born into nobility, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so to get back to the earlier question you asked, is China unique? Yeah, I would argue it is unique, right? And, and the exam system 
was introduced so early, and and then it had this democratized democratization or democratizing effect in terms of the mobility, upward mobility, right? So this is kind of a almost like a, almost like the myth of American dream, yeah. right? So from the rack to the to the riches, and the exam system did that, right? And um, you know whether or not. It democratized the system. That's a separate debate. I, I don't think it democratized yeah. the system. It actually did exactly the opposite. But in terms of the mobility, what's also amazing about this system is that it has both upward mobility and downward mobility. Right? I don't I don't and I don't follow. Could, what do you mean downward mobility? Well, you can get promoted, but you can also get demoted. Based uh, on merits or politics big, or both? No, no, based based on your performance. Yeah, and so it was a genuine meritocracy. Uh, sometimes we think about meritocracy only in terms of upward mobility, but a true meritocracy has both upward and downward mobility. Of course, yeah, uh, yeah. One of the most famous scholars on the exam system is uh, Pingding uh, Ho. And he wrote this big uh, book as early as 1964, documenting both upward and downward mobility. That was really, really incredible. Yeah. So once you get to a place, you're not entitled to remain there unless you perform. That's right. Um, That's right. So all of this sounds so positive. It's just, it's just <laughs> you know, a merit-based uh civilization yeah. going back to the sixth yeah, century yeah. europe doesn't catch yeah. up with that gosh let me yeah. see till late 1700s when you look at france and, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. england yeah. well par prussia prussia started that's true uh, uh yeah so frederick the, the great the you're right yes yeah frederick the great um, yeah that, that, so yeah. what's the problem this sounds so fabulous <laughs> this should have did this but, but, help china's yeah. economy <laughs> It did exactly the opposite. Um, that, that's, and, that's where I don't follow. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so so going back to our earlier distinction between homogeneity and heterogeneity, mm -hmm. this system promoted homogeneity and it completely eliminated heterogeneity. Right. So if you think about economic growth, technological development, it required a degree of heterogeneity or differences of ideas. Entrepreneurship, inventions, and what have you. Entrepreneurship, disruption, right? So all the kind of buzzwords that we uh, talk about, we use to apply to Silicon Valley. Exactly. Apply, right? So the system was so effective. In promoting uh, upward and downward mobility, and in homogenizing the uh, ideas and ideology, it was so successful in that area that it demolished all these other forms of mobility. Right. So, and and also think about another effect. The this is civil service exam. You succeeded at the exam you got promoted or incorporated into the bureaucracy. It was so powerful that everybody wanted to go into bureaucracy. 
Okay. Versus uh, opening up their own shop or their own sort of entrepreneur. Uh, See, a, 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 a completely diverted human capital from economic arenas, technological arenas, or from political opposition to bureaucracy, right? And so that's the, the trick. And uh, it is, and, and this is something that, um, that is, so, so I, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about this system, but exactly for the same reason you just pointed out, it was democratizing, it was fair in many, many ways and, and quite legitimate, but then it led to this Result, so right? when when we talk about these exam systems that put you through um, uh, the system of the bureaucracy, once you're there, the bureaucracy is almost like a system of inculcation and creating yeah. uniform way of thinking. Uh, well, it, it, actually, it is much much more beyond the bureaucracy. These exams. So let me just a little bit about this example. It's about sheer memorization. Oh. So we we so it's not like you know um, doing a Socratic uh, method or something essay. like that. It's not Socratic. It's all sheer memorization. Who has the best memorization? Young people. And you want to prepare the young people for the exam at a very early age, right? So there are scholars who believe that boys as young as three, four, five years old began to prepare. Now you, you, you think back, okay, you start from that early age to prepare for the exam, and the curriculum is about one idea. Respect for the authority, respect for the emperor, Respect for the parents and, and basically Confucianist yeah. ideology, right? And you got indoctrinated into that idea at the age of three, four, five years old, right? And and you took the exam, you know, possibly at the age of uh, in our database uh, in the Ming Dynasty, uh, the youngest person who passed the exam. Uh, I think I, I can't quite remember, like 12 years old, 13 oh, years old. Wow. But the, but the oldest, the oldest person was 59, right? Yeah. And the average age was 36, right? And during the ancient times, you know, people had shorter life expectancy. Yeah. Uh, 36 is practically middle age, uh, in the 14th century. Yeah. So, so essentially you, you spend your whole life Preparing for the exam and indoctrinated, get got indoctrinated in this one ideology. So right. okay, okay. So, so I think you clarified a lot here for me. When we talk about exams and education, this is not what we call exam and education here in the West. This is much different. One thing that still puzzles me, um, uh, Dr. Huang, is this. Earlier in this segment, you said almost all male population was like, like was sort of prepare for this. And we were talking about, you know, starting to prepare for this at the young age of three, four, five. Who has the money to do this? Is this just for the elite? Yeah. 
How does this happen? Yeah, yeah excellent question. Uh, first of all, uh, I, let me clarify. Uh, I didn't say all the male population prepared for oh. it. Uh, all the male population was theoretically eligible for it, right? So there's eligible a, a between eligible okay. for it, right? So and and, uh, and and because of economics, because of other things, not all the male population participated in the exam. So let me come to your question. Okay. Uh, so the Chinese system was very thoughtful in that regard. They established you said thoughtful in that mean, regard. Th th yeah, extremely thoughtful. They they thought through this question, right? So you know, remember the debate that we're having now uh -huh. about uh, kids, their parents pay thousands and tens of thousands of dollars preparing their children for 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 Ivy League. Yeah, it's happening uh, right now university. in America. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, so the Chinese were very thoughtful. They thought about this problem, and then they established nationwide preparatory system that was completely free. Oh come on! This is really. Yeah. In the in the in the uh, the first idea came around the tenth century, and we don't really have data to show how prevalent that system was. By about 14th and 15th century, there were about 2,400 basic administrative units in China, and there were more than 2,300 preparatory schools. So essentially, each basic administrative unit, on average, had one preparatory school. This is as universal wow. as you can get in historical time, right? And it was incredible. I mean, just, just sort of just um, foresight. You know, for, for yeah. when you say incredible, uh, if I may share something with our audience, the concept of universal education, free education, one of the earlier people that I know of was Frederick the Great. You and I talked about that yeah. in, in, in yeah. one of the countries within the sort of German um, peoples. But that was later in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Yeah. You're telling me 10th century on. This, I mean, doesn't this blow your mind? It absolutely blew my mind. I didn't know this before. And <laughs> the they were thinkers in 9th century, 10th century, educators who argued for educating women. Extending oh, wow. basic education to women. They never did it, but but at least they made the argument. And their argument is very interesting. Their argument is a very utilitarian argument. They are saying that, look at these boys, you know, they are preparing for the exam, and we need their mothers to educate them before they came to these preparatory schools, right? So that's why we need to educate women. <laughs> um, and... Wow, and, and there's there's scattered uh, evidence to show the literacy rate for women was was you know not high by any stretch of imagination, but it wasn't zero either, right? And there were famous women poets uh, in Chinese history. So when I was growing up in China, I read these poems. I never thought of that question. Well, how how could these women knew how to 
read and write in 8th century and 9th century. And it was a spillover effect of this system. Um, the, the, the problem, you know, let me just quickly ask. Please, please. <laughs> the, the, the problem with it. The problem was that the ideology being indoctrinated through the system was so conservative and anti-liberal, so it never became an ideology that advocated equality and fairness, right? So unlike uh, education in the West, that educated people about the value of equality. The Chinese system, as, as you know, thoughtful as it was, never really opened up to female portion of the population. And that was a huge limitation of the system. Wow. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about stability and scale. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Huang, please explain stability and scope terms that you use in your book. In the context of China's history, are scale and stability sort of synonymous? Uh, in the context of Chinese history, it is. Um, what what do they mean? Of, well, okay, so the scale of the government, it, it, it's related to the exam system, right? So if you could have hundreds of thousands of people indoctrinated, very effectively in the same ruling ideology. You could extend that ruling ideology to a big territory more than you would if you didn't have this unifying uh, system. And the ideology itself is very much about the rule of autocrats, the rule of autocracy, the virtue of it, the sanctity of it, right? So these two things go exactly uh, with each other together. The literacy, what I call the exam literacy uh, in China, is not about liberalization, equality, and rights, and things like that, right? It is all about the virtue of the emperor, the virtue of authoritarianism, and therefore, vast portion of the population became immersed in that idea that stability meant autocracy, 
that idea is still very powerful in China today. This is how Chinese leaders today talk about the virtue of their system. They always say, okay, if we uh, implement democracy, what you're going to have is civil war, domestic instability, and then they point to the U.S., uh, generalistic yeah, riot yeah. and uh, as a, as an example of that, and then they point to India, the chaos there, right? And you know, this is not a one-sided propaganda. A lot of, I would say, vast majority of the Chinese people bought into that idea, and, and and because for centuries and for centuries that was the idea uh, that is being uh, imparted to them. Through this powerful uh, platform, so it is a ingrained idea in China. Even some very well educated elite, Western educated, even bought into that idea. I don't buy into it. I I don't see. If you look at the statistics, autocracies have huge instability, <laughs> and uh, uh, statistically speaking, it's just it's just nonsense. But but what I think doesn't really matter. So so. Many, many Chinese citizens buy into that idea. And in my book, I argue this is one reason why the Chinese Communist Party can be so durable, despite the fact that there, there have been so many failures in the history uh, of the Communist Party. Do you think, huh, do you think one reason uh, that the people of China, historically speaking, uh, put up with autocracy. Uh, is one reason because of all the dangers that lurked outside their borders, but different tribes from the north, from the northeast, um, how smaller states, they had periods of smaller kingdoms, but they couldn't yeah. bring stability. Is that one thing? Uh, is, is that a thing? Yeah, that may be a thing. It, at least in my own thinking, it didn't figure prominently in explaining this acceptance of uh, autocracy. Now, if that's the fear, you you shouldn't have that fear today in China. Great right? point. So, <laughs> China, yeah. China has nothing to fear from Mongolia. Exactly. And, yeah. and even from Russia, you know, Russia, Russia's GDP, $1.7 trillion. Yeah, 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 about yeah, the same yeah. as one Chinese problem. Great point. Right? So, um, um, and so objectively speaking, I, I, I don't think that's a, that's a source of that uh, fear. But you are also right that the rulers tend to play up that fear, but now they are pointing to the West, right? They are pointing to the United yeah. States. But but even when they are pointing to the United States, they, they never really say U.S. is going to invade China. That that that's not that's not how they how they talk about it. They talk about U.S. wants to undermine the Chinese system, and there's a fundamental difference between undermining the system and undermining the country. Yeah. Right. So even that fear should, rationally speaking, should not lead to the idea that I support you because U.S. wants to undermine it. So let's talk about scope. We said uh, at the outset of this segment, we, we, yeah. we, you know, we, we said let's talk about scale and scope. So scope is the second thing. Yeah. 
So the scope in my book has two main dimensions. There could be others, but in my book, I talk about two. One is the political scope, and the, the other is ideological scope. Political scope basically means a diversity of political and administrative entities, right? Think about Europe, mm-hmm. multiple countries, and EU is sort of a collection of the loose collection of this of these uh, countries, but still these countries are quite separate from each other. In my book, I talk about a Chinese-European moment, uh, and that moment was actually a few centuries, almost four centuries, from 220 to uh, 580. They were you know, altogether something like 30 administrative political entities, sometimes in parallel with each other, sometimes sequential with each other, right? They fiercely competed with each other for human capital, for uh, for resources, and they also fought with each other, just like European countries yeah. fighting with their 100-year war, 30-year war, right? So they constantly fought with each other. So that's the political scope. The ideological scope, uh, China also had ideological scope for a very long period of its history. It had Confucianism for sure, right? So that's, you know, that's how people today associate China with in terms of ideology. But China also had Buddhism. It was imported into China from India in the first century uh, CE. China also had Buddhism. China had legalism. Um, uh, Moheism, right? China had multiple ideologies for a long stretch of its history. So this is where the civil service exam system did its trick. Because only one ideology was tested, other ideologies were sidelined and marginalized, right? So it led to this ideological homogeneity, first a little bit beginning around 9th century, 10th century, and then decisively uh, after uh, 13th and 14th uh, centuries. You know, today China has one ideology, you know, whatever ideology you call it, uh, national ideology or communist ideology, that is actually a continuous legacy from this project that began as early as uh, 6th century. So, so China lost both political scope first in 6th century because China got reunified in 580. And then for the next 400 years, it began to lose ideological heterogeneity. And, and then China became basically this unified one-party system with one dominant and monopolistic ideology. And this is very much China today. Um, in an earlier um, conversation with a different scholar, um, they brought up something uh, along the lines of what you were saying. You talked about small European states that constantly fought each other to just near past. Um, and he said that's one of the reasons why Europe had a, has a more robust financial system is because many of these small states needed to borrow money to fight. And because of that, uh, uh, financial systems developed in Europe. 
What I'm wondering is this, going back to this era, 220 to 580, where you had many, uh, 30 even, uh, administrative systems, some in parallel even, was this a period of proliferation of ideas and, 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 and technology and entrepreneurship in China? Yeah, that was the peak of Chinese technology. Wow. That was also the peak of humanistic creation. So when I say... What do you mean by China's that? Europe, humanistic creation. Oh, yeah. If, if, if you uh, kind of measure, uh, this is probably very crude and primitive, and many humanities scholars will get mad at me. So if you kind of look at per capita production of humanistic uh, output, uh-huh. uh, the number of humanistic work uh-huh. per capita, that was the peak wow. during, during, during that period. As well as in our measure, the number of inventions per capita, that was also the peak. Wow. So when I say that was the European moment, I meant I meant it both in political ideological yeah, yeah, yeah. terms as well as also in technological terms as well, right? Kind of a Renaissance period, and and it was the most creative era by far in Chinese history. By far, right? They. By by far, they they I would say more than you know. Well, I shouldn't say more than today because strictly on per capita basis, that's not true. But in terms of kind of diversity of ideology, yeah. Right. In terms of diversity measure, definitely a dwarf China today. There were multiple ideologies. There were intellectuals who were not part of the state. Right, they were independent intellectuals, and they were intellectuals who delighted themselves in challenging the state ideology. Wow! Right? Wow! Try, 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 try to find ten of those in China today. <laughs> Good luck. Well, you can find no, no. you can find hundreds yeah. of them outside China, such as yourself, but not in China. Well, yeah, that's yeah. true. But in China, because they are in jail, yeah. right? So. It's 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 really it's a remarkable period. It's a period that many historians kind of brush aside and quickly glance over. They don't really focus on that period. Uh, but to me, it is actually the most fascinating period in Chinese. Because usually, when you look at history, you're you look at maps, how big it is. You look at the political stuff, and yeah. you you yeah. yeah. Um, let's take a break yeah. here. Stay with me and Dr. Huang as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Huang, in the earlier segment, uh, you talked about women, uh, education. Uh, there were talks about educating women. Uh, you, as, as a child, you had read Chinese poems that were written by women, um, which made me think of this somewhat relevant. Uh, uh, I noted that you had founded uh, an organization in 
the Yunnan province, if I'm remembering that correctly, yeah. in which it fosters, it encourages um, entrepreneurship by, by women. Do I have that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I have had long believed that liberalizing women, empower women, is the best medical, uh, is the best economic medicine you can have. Right. So if you look at East Asia, uh, uh, South, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, even though we thought of them as a patriarchal society, female un, uh, 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 employment, female involvement in the labor force was much more ahead of other developing countries in the 1960s and 1970s. Right. So I always believe that that is the way to grow the economy. Yunnan province is a very unique province. It is very heterogeneous, to use this term, mm -hmm. in terms of ethnic minorities, and, and also it has low per capita GDP. It is backward in terms of its economic development. And we got a grant from Goldman Sachs Foundation to train women entrepreneurs in business school curriculum not in general education, doing basic math and doing basic um, language, but in basic economic and, and, and commercial marketing concepts. So, um, so I worked with Goldman Sachs Foundation and created this educational program for women entrepreneurs in Yunnan province. And we tried our best to recruit minority women entrepreneurs into our program. It turned out to be very, very successful. And, Congratulations. And I, really, I, and I really owe uh, gratitude to Goldman Sachs Foundation for their vision of this uh, uh, program. One of our students won the global prize for entrepreneurship. Uh, for global prize, um, okay. Global prize, yeah. yeah, global prize, and and uh, organized by the Goldman Sachs Foundation. Uh, they told me I still keep in touch with some of them even today. They told me that the program gave them confidence. Uh, the program gave them access to the government officials. Uh, the the program gave them knowledge, and with that knowledge, they gained. Uh, confidence, they gain expertise, um, and some of them, you know, learn how to talk back to their <laughs> husband. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just, fun. It, it's just fantastic. Um, and all it, of this was it was was sanctioned by China's government and local governments. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was a while ago. Um, it was from 2014, right? So, 2018. That was a while ago. The, is the and program the, still nope. uh, working? No, oh. no. Yeah, no. The Goldman Sachs Foundation program, they have a global program mm -hmm. to support education for women entrepreneurs. And their goal was to uh, educate 10,000 women entrepreneurs. I think we alone uh, had something like 500 women entrepreneurs going through our uh, program. And uh, it was supported by uh, Yunnan University. We partner with MIT Sloan School, partner with the Yunnan U University. 
It was uh, supported by the local government uh, there. Uh, it was a very, very successful program. Wow. Talk about um, creating scope here, different ideological and, and sort of uh, uh, business ideas um, that, that could really proliferate and become a hub of entrepreneurship in China as far as women's are, uh, women are concerned. Um, you know, so now we're talking about 2014 to 2018, China's relatively um, current time. It, whenever uh, I hear conversations about China, particularly with scholars, invariably from time to time you hear the following phrase, uh, quote, Today's China is shaped by its past, unquote. Um, you know, it sounds profound, and it is, but you hear it so often that after a while it starts to sound kind of like a platitude. Um, my family and I just came from the United Kingdom, uh, Southern England, and the past was everywhere. Like England is yeah, shaped yeah, yeah. by its past. So uh, <laughs> yeah. is there something unique about this statement when it comes to China? Is it something different? Well, I mean, it's, that statement is so true, it doesn't even deserve to be said multiple times, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, it's just like saying you and I are shaped by our own upbringing. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. I mean, so, yeah. and then we need to talk about something else, right? So. The, the the reason why I'm not happy with that formulation is it is incredibly broad, vague, and uh, ambiguous. It's also right? kind of limiting. So it uh, well, it, it is definitely limiting. There are, there are other things that shape a country globalization, yeah. technology, and things like that. But but I think as a general statement, we cannot argue with that. We cannot dispute that. Yeah. We cannot say, uh, uh, you know, a country, whatever country that is, U.S., China, Japan, is not state by that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's just, if I, I always, have a, always have a test on how profound a statement is by turning that statement on its head, right? If you turn that statement on its head, it sounds trivial. Then the statement itself is trivial, yeah. right? So, if, if, if or totally untrue, then it is it is not terribly significant. Yeah. But what I do in my book is I trace China to a specific Chinese, the example, yeah, right, to sixth century, and I can still say it's saved by its past. But then the next logical question is. Which path are you talking about? Exactly. You know, China has a long history, and 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 so, so I, I I guess I'm more specific uh, than the people you quoted. Yeah. And and also I have a mechanical explanation, right? So the the the, the system as a system as a mechanism, rather than some sort of vague ideas and. Or memory of the past. This is a very specific mechanism, and we trace the current to that specific mechanism. So, let's let's conclude our conversation with this big question: 
from everything you've shared with me, it seems like China now is more like what happened during the Ming Dynasty and Qing Dynasty with respect to unification of the country, not just geographically, but also administratively, ideologically. And those things eventually led to China's um, sort of stifled innovation and led to China's decline. Is that where we are with China? Well, yeah. So, so uh, yes and no. I, I, I don't think uni uh, territorial unification today is a either necessary condition or sufficient condition for decline. Right? You, you know, you you have. Um, you have United States, well, although some people may say United States is declining in a large country. Um, I, I think what bothers me the most is ideological unification, ideological homogeneity. Uh, if you look at the recent history of China since 1978, um, oh, another thing that bothers me is the economic unification, um, lack of competition, lack of globalization or retreat from globalization. If you look at the recent history between 1978 to uh, 2018, I date 2018 as the end of the reform era, China had, you know, it was a one-party system for sure, but within that part. One party system, there was some diversity. Yeah. There were some scope uh, conditions, right? So different factions and different uh, uh, different uh, leaders and, and collective uh, leadership. Also, you had economic diversity, private ownership, foreign ownership. You had uh, academic exchanges, educational exchanges with the West between Chinese universities and Western universities. So under that one-party system and under one territorial system, you had a level of diversity that contributed to economic growth. A lot of things were bubbling up from beneath. Right? A lot of things, oh, entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and uh, I wrote my last book on rural entrepreneurship. A lot of things were bubbling up from below. Yeah, yeah. And the political system accommodated itself to that uh, phenomenon, right? So one period of time, you had rural entrepreneurs, you had, you know, big shots from the state-owned yeah, enterprises, yeah. you had foreign multinational corporations, you have foreign cap uh, venture capitalists and competing with domestic venture capitalists. You had Hong Kong, right? So you just had multiple economic sources of competition. What bothers me today is China is retreating from all of that, right? So essentially, you still have political autocracy, although I would argue today's autocracy is more autocratic than it was before 2018. Yeah. And then you are eliminating these economic diversities you are eliminating globalization and connections with the West. Um, that's not a recipe for continuous economic development, continuous economic growth. That's my worry. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. 
Dr. Huang, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Huang. Thank you very much, Adele. I really enjoyed our conversation. Same here. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.